Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. It's good to see some familiar faces. It's good to have those of you who are able to join at home with us as well. So uh, welcome to you also. We are in a series that has been uh, longstanding now. Uh, We've been doing this for a while, 10 weeks so far. Uh, We are in the book of Genesis, so if you haven't been with us and you want to join along, uh, it's easy to find. Just start at the beginning and you'll, you'll catch up quick. Uh, but we're calling it Origins. We are situating ourselves uh, in the story that we've been given as Christians, which is Israel's story, so that we learn how to live today. We're learning who we are and who God is based on how our story begins. Yeah? And, and the thing that we've been learning, uh, maybe most acutely, is that uh, the questions that we bring to the text shape the answers that we find in the text. The questions, the assumptions, the, the, the lenses that we bring to it end up shaping what we see and what we don't see, the answers that we find and the questions that remain. And, and so throughout this series, I've been attempting to bring a different set of questions than maybe the ones that we're used to bringing. Questions about who this story is written to And what were their concerns? What were their questions? And how do those questions get passed down to us? And one of the things that's been uh, a revelation for me as we've been doing this, uh, approaching it this way, um, is that this approach has caused, for some, a sense of real relief. That this way of looking at Genesis has helped unlock things, address things, renew things that... that, um, were needed to be uh, renewed. But there, there are others for whom this approach uh, makes us feel very uncomfortable. It, it unearths things that we didn't want to be unearthed. It calls into question things that we've been taught maybe by people that we respect and love. People that had a great influence over the way our faith took shape and root. And, and maybe even just this approach in general to the Bible makes us feel like we're unmoored uh, from the faith that we've learned, or, that, or even that we're under attack. I want you to know that's not my intention. I'm actually trying to be more faithful to the Scriptures, not less, in the way that we have been approaching it throughout this whole, um, this whole series. And I, I was thinking about it like this. It's, it's a little bit like the apple cart analogy. And uh, I, I know I've been tipping a lot of apple carts as we go through the series. For some, like, when the cart gets tipped, you're like, there were good apples in that cart, and I wanted those apples. <laughs> and I feel like you just poured them all over the ground. And I, I get that. I understand that. If those apples are producing good fruit, I want them to stay in the basket. <laughs> okay? I'm not trying to remove them from your basket. But there are many others who uh, have had those same apples in their carts and those apples are rotting the entire cart. They're not bearing good fruit. In fact, they're polluting their faith altogether. They're finding it difficult to hold on to faith in Jesus entirely because of the way that they've been taught how certain apples have to stay in that cart. And so, yeah, for them, I'm trying to tip it, not to, not to uproot their faith, but to help them renew it and find it again. Does that make sense? So maybe you're somewhere in between those two things, but I want you to be sort of, 
have an, an idea of why it is that we're approaching it the way that we are. And I do think that uh, this approach is renewing for many of us, even if we don't sense that it is on the surface. God is up to something. He's up to something. So, the story that maybe illustrates this the most happens to be the story that we're going to talk about today. Uh, You all have been waiting patiently like Noah, waiting for the flood. And today, we get to his story. It's here. And we're going to unpack it for the next two, maybe three weeks. I haven't decided yet. We'll see how next week goes. But uh, we're going to start in Genesis uh, 6, verse 5, and uh, go all the way through chapter 7, verse 23. I'm going to skip a few bits that we'll get to next week. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth. And His heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. We'll talk more about the ark and its construction next week. Skip all the way down to to chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Verse 17. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under, until the, under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Everything living that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals. All the creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. Uh, This sounds like a kid's story, yeah? Noah and the ark. It's a story about 
the entire world drowning in a flood, save for one man and his family, along with representatives from every type of animal. It's horrific, is it not? It should strike us as horrific. And yet, somehow, we are just fine with using it to decorate our nurseries with cute pictures like this. Now you can't see all the detail on it probably, but it's adorable, isn't it? It's adorable. Now, apart from the reality that we should probably have caution over decorating our children's bedrooms with a mass extinction event, I picked this particular decoration because let's do a thought experiment. This decal goes above a crib, right? The crib is even in the picture. Where is the child in relation to the ark? In the, yeah, it looks like this. The child uh, resting peacefully in the crib is looking up at the ark from the perspective of someone drowning in the watery depths. <laughs> So, I mean, we're all getting a laugh, right, about the absurdity of this. But our laughter actually does conceal, I think, for many, uh, deep pain and confusion that we have regarding this particular story. Uh, We laugh at it because we don't know what else to do with it. (laughs) Our laughter is an uncomfortable laughter. We make it cute to, to sort of mask the horror. But for many, especially many people who don't follow Jesus, the horror of this story remains. We have no idea why it's in our Bible. And I'm convinced that many of us don't either. So um, I, I think there are some who, when we think about this story, have been traumatized by this cute little ark and these adorable little animals. We've been traumatized by it. I've talked with people for whom the, the, the story of Noah's Ark was used as a lever of fear to get them into faith in Jesus Christ. Compelled by loved ones to pray a prayer as a child for no other reason than because they were told that the God who sent the flood to kill sinners would also send the fires of hell if they didn't get on the Ark called Jesus. For those that were raised with this kind of idea, it brings about these images of of a schizophrenic God who looks like Jesus when He's happy, but who looks like the flood of vengeance when He's mad. And so don't get on His bad side. Like, be a good little girl. A good little boy. I have a, a friend of a friend. I heard their story, and they grew up with a dad who was an angry drunk and a mom who took the father's abuse to save them and who said that whenever they read the story of the flood through this lens of an angry God, they get a picture of their dad and their mom and how they relate to each other. It's deeply traumatizing. Now, on the other hand, um, we might not be traumatized by the story, but I'm convinced that many more of us are scandalized by it. We're scandalized by it. We don't know what to make of it. We have friends who poke holes in it and we're sort of low-key embarrassed that it's in our Bibles at all. 
And the only option that we're, we're given is to uh, defend it as historical accuracy and put our trust in people like Ken Ham. That's the only thing that we know what to do with it. But the problem is it doesn't resolve the issues that we sense whenever we read this story. And so we bury those issues and questions and we hope that they don't find us out. Is God schizophrenic? Is God out for blood? Does this story about what God is like confirm our worst fears, a God of violence and retribution, whom Jesus placates and pacifies on the cross? No. No, we proclaim the good news that our God is not a God of violence. He doesn't feel one way about you when you're good and another way about you when you're bad. God is love, full stop. And one manifestation of that love is that He is a God who holds a mirror up, not to show us His violence, but our violence and what it does to us, each other, and the world. The injustice that we do to one another one another. This is what grieves the heart of our Heavenly Father. He regrets all that we've become and all that we do to each other. Friends, where is God's mirror illuminating the injustice that still lives in you? Jesus, the perfect image of what God looks like, He longs to gather you in to His presence to heal you, mind, body, spirit. Are you willing? Are you willing? Uh, I want to look at two questions today. What is the flood? And what reasons does Genesis give for its occurrence? Okay? What is it? And why is it? First, what is it? Well, to understand what's happening in the flood, we have to remember what happened in Genesis 1 because the two stories are mirror images of one another. Okay? So what happens in Genesis 1? Let's remember it. In Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void. Remember? The Hebrew for that was tohu vabohu. And what happened? Where was God in the midst of this formlessness and void? He was hovering over the waters of the deep. His spirit, his wind, hovered there. Those watery depths, if you remember, uh, it's the Hebrew word tahom. Keep that in mind. And he pushed back the waters of the deep, the chaos of those primordial waters in order to do what? What is he creating by pushing back the chaos? Do you remember? Land. What's he planned to do with that land? What is its purpose, its function? It's to be a temple. A temple where God comes. A temple called Eden where he could live and reign with his image bearers. The people that he had given his authority to. The people that looked like him. And his, his purpose was to, to dwell alongside those who were given that authority to rule on his behalf. Eden is the temple of God's activity. And it wasn't supposed to stay just this little bubble of isolated peace in the midst of chaos. What was to be the point? The, the boundaries of Eden were intended to expand outward as the humans, his created image bearers, multiplied themselves so that they could spread the glory of God over the face of the world as the waters cover the seas. So take back the chaos and make order out of it through the presence of God. So what is the flood then? If it's the mirror image of Genesis 1, what is it? Well, um, what we see, it, 
is that the chaos and the void that are depicted in the form of water, watery depths, what do they do? They rush back in to cover the earth once again. The watery depths rise to submerge the earth, and instead of Eden filling the earth with God's ordering and shaping presence, the boundaries of that peaceful existence collapse back in on its original state. And the breath of life that God had given to His humans is withdrawn. Notice how it said that? There are other similarities in the story. We'll talk more about them next week. The fact that the ark is shaped like a new temple. The fact that God's wind is the thing that pushes back the waters after those 40 days. The fact that a blessing is given. There are naked people. And Noah plants a vineyard when he gets his feet on dry ground again, which is very much like a garden which started the whole thing in the first place. You see all the parallels? I'm getting ahead of myself. For today, I want us to see that the flood is the chaos that God held back in Genesis 1, rushing back in to consume the world once again. This is nothing less than the decreation of the world. That's the point. It's the decreation of the world. And you know this because even the birds somehow catch this decreation event. Like, I don't know if you've spent any time on the ocean, but birds can, can like, live out a long time uh, just sitting on the surface of the water, but even they are removed from creation. Why? Because this is, this is um, prophetic, hyperbolic language to talk about how far God has to go because of the condition of the world. And this is evident in the way that God talks about this whole event. So, uh, we get the, 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 the idea around this from Genesis 6, uh, verses 11 to 13. Notice the word that keeps popping up again and again and again and again and again. Okay? Four times. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and God saw how corrupt it had become. For all the people had what? Corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Now I said that the word corrupt was used four times. How many did you count? Three. And it's the Hebrew word shalchat, which is just fun to say. If we weren't at the tail end of a pandemic, I'd say turn to your neighbor and say shalchat and just spit all over him. But don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> We're not there yet. But the word shalchat means to corruption, to be ruined, to be spoiled. It's, it's like those apples in the cart that have to be thrown out because they're not good for anything anymore. They're rotten to the core. And what God says is that the earth itself had become shalchat because God's appointed rulers, His image bearers, the ones He had given authority to, were shalchat. They were corrupted. They were spoiled. They were ruined. Now, verse 13 says that the consequence of that corruption is what? The NIV says destroyed. But can you guess what word it is? It's shachat. See, it is fun to say, isn't it? The verb there is the same as the description of what the earth had already become. This is what God is saying. 
I am going to allow them to experience what they have already become. I'm going to allow them to experience what they, what they already are. What they've already said that they want. Is the flood God zapping the human race and everything under it with punishment? Or, or is the flood the natural outworking of the corruption and the decreation that humans subjected themselves and creation to? Today, friends, I contend that the flood is a story of what happens when God, instead of holding back the primordial waters as He's been doing, while the earth escalates in its violence and its corruption, removes His hands of protection. It removes His hands of protection because that's what the humans have asked for. Do you want to hear evidence of that? Job 22, verse 16 and 17 in reference to the flood, say this, they were carried off before their time. Their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. There it is. Leave us alone. That is the message of the flood. We have a very polite God. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. We have a very polite God, meaning that in many ways, God respects the choices and the will of His people. Yes, there are moments when He intervenes, but there are moments when He withdraws. I was serious a few weeks ago when I said that divine judgment in Scripture is divine withdrawal. Because we see it here. The flood is evidence of God giving His creation over to His stewards. He's, the people that He's put in charge and then withdrawing his divine creational power to withhold chaos at bay. And the result of that withdrawal is that the world goes back into the primordial deep. But God brings a remnant through it to a new place and renews His covenant with them. Right? God allows us to experience the consequences of our choices. But He always maintains and sustains and brings through a remnant that He can begin to work with anew to reestablish their picture of what God is like and their rulership over the earth. This happens again and again and again in Scripture. Most notably, it happens to Israel when they're carried off into Babylonian exile, right? It's the same story. It's the same story. Only they're not washed over by a flood. They're washed over by the armies of Babylon. And what the prophets tell Israel again and again is that God had protected them for generations. He allowed their sin to continue, hoping, hoping, hoping that they would put an end to their violence. Instead, they put an end to their desire for God to stop the violence. And so God says, okay, we can have it your way. And the result of that, his, his tool of judgment, when he withdraws his hand, is a stronger nation who brings, that, who brings his people into exile. But he doesn't give up on them. He never gives up on them. With tears in his eyes, though, he cannot allow it to continue, his creation to continue the corruption that it's brought up upon itself. Friends, the good news that we proclaim today is that our God is not a God of violence. He doesn't feel one way about us when we're good and another way when we're bad. God is love, full stop. 
And one manifestation of that love is that he holds a mirror up to show us our violence and what it does to us, each other, and the world. The injustice that we bring upon ourselves and each other, it grieves the heart of God. He, he laments and regrets what we've become. And Jesus, the perfect image of God, he longs to gather us back into his presence to heal us once and for all. Are we willing? All right, so what is the flood? The flood is God allowing creation to experience the corruption that happens when he withdraws his protective presence because that's what his creation has chosen. That's what. Why is the flood? That may be the tougher question because to answer this, again, what we've been doing throughout this whole story is we've been looking at the context in which ancient Israel is struggling to, to figure out what their God is like. And so, in order to see why the flood is occurring, we have to remember that Noah and the, the ark aren't the only flood stories in the ancient Near East. Israel's neighbors, neighbors like Babylon, who they had become well acquainted with, also had stories about a great flood. These stories are called Atrahasis and Gilgamesh. I've referred to them a couple times in sparing, you know, bits and pieces throughout the way. And the, these stories that, that other um, nations had shared vast similarities with Israel's flood story. So for instance, in many of these stories, a god warns one loyal worshiper about a coming flood. That one worshiper builds a boat or a raft and it always has multiple levels. A storm comes and uh, um, in the Genesis account, God waits seven days after Noah enters the ark. In other stories, the, the flood itself lasts seven days. So there's a correlation of numbers. The boat comes to rest on a mountain. Birds are sent to see if it's safe. Sacrifices are made to the gods who saved them. And there is usually some sort of divine lament. So in the Atrahasis, one of the gods who sent the flood, laments that the flood may have gone too far. Maybe I ate some bad pizza the night before. Whoops. I didn't mean for things to turn out this way. Now, um, we have a, a discussion on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock. It's on Zoom. Uh, we've been talking out a lot of these things and, and diving into deeper, deep, de- deeper detail than we can get here. And if you want to come and debate the scale of the flood on Wednesday night with me, Come on, let's, let's do it, okay? Uh, whether it's regional or whether it's global, we'll talk, we can talk about all the reasons on one side versus the other, okay? That's not my purpose to this morning, to convince you one way or the other. But, it, but we do have to see that there are commonly held assumptions that all ancient Near Eastern people had about some kind of flood event. And these were the assumptions. One... A flood happened. At some point in history, a flood occurred. Two, lots of people died. Three, civilization survived because we're all here. And four, this event tells us something that we need to understand today. There's a message behind the event. And we need to understand what that message is. We have to extrapolate what the truth is 
so that we can um, process it and make meaning of it. Human beings are meaning-making machines, right? We can't let a tragedy go without trying to make some kind of meaning out of it. And every civilization and people in Israel's day is trying to make meaning of this common event that they all would have assumed happened at some time in the past. They're grappling with questions. Now, this is where the stories diverge, is on that fourth point, is on what does this mean, okay? For instance, in other ancient Near Eastern flood stories, let's take the Atrahasis as an example. There are some different meanings going on that have explanatory power for their people about why this flood occurred. So, um, the, the issue, the problem that prompts the flood in the Atrahasis is that uh, we, human beings, are disturbing the God's rest. That's the reason. I totally get that as a dad. You know? I was working on the sermon last night at like what would have been like 11 o'clock because you add the hour. And my kids come downstairs because they're hungry. I don't want to deal with it. Like they're disturbing my concentration. <laughs> and I'm like, just go to bed. <laughs> Who knows what might have happened <laughs> if Mandy weren't there. <sighs> the reason that the flood occurs in the Atrahasis is that we disturb God's rest. We make too much noise. And the idea is this, is because people are violent, that violence creates noise. It's a ruckus. And add to that, whenever there's violence done, there's always someone who's on the receiving end of that violence. There's someone who suffers. And those who suffer, they also make noise because they petition gods for help. Help us! Like, people are doing things to us. It's unjust. We're being killed. We're being raped. Like, bad things are happening. Would you come to our aid? Their cries make a lot of noise. But notice, it's not the violence itself that troubles the gods. It's the noise that that violence and the suffering that's produced creates that disturbs the gods' peace. They're like, why are you bothering us so much? And one of the gods, Ea, gets so ticked off that he responds to his disturbed peace by, saying, by gathering all the other gods and saying, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have any of these humans anymore to bother us? I mean, you think the Genesis flood is messed up. That's messed up. Do you see the difference? The thing that makes Noah's God grieve over his creation, the sin that he names specifically, is not noise. It's violence. Violence um, is also the word for injustice in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And it's used throughout Scripture to describe all kinds of physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual domination of one person or people over another. And the picture that we get from Genesis is that the human race has become the embodiment of what God warned Cain about in the first place. Sin wants to dominate you its desire is upon you. And if you don't subdue it, it is going to rule you. And that's the picture we see in the flood. 
In Genesis, the problem is not that we destroy God's rest. It's that we destroy each other. And unlike the violent gods of Israel's neighbors, Israel's God isn't disturbed by our cries for justice. He's disturbed by the injustice itself. In other words, it's what we do to each other that God laments. Not that we want Him to do something about it. In fact, the story of Genesis is that we don't want Him to do something about it. We want to be left to our violent ways. We want to be left alone so that we can continue to do this. And like we've seen time and time again over the last ten weeks, Genesis goes out of its way to connect with the expectations of its audience and then subvert those expectations and redirect them back to a God of goodness and grace and restoration who cares about the plight of his people, not just that they disturb him. The messages that Israel heard about this ancient flood from all of their neighbors is that we disturbed the gods, they got violent, and they took us out. They're like that abusive alcoholic parent, but there's no mom to correct them and to take the abuse for us, and so we take it ourselves. But Israel's God says, no, this is not what God is like. The problem is that we got violent and we took each other out. And our God allows us to experience the corruption that we brought on ourselves. Not because He doesn't love us, but because He is love. And our violence is a transgression against that love. Friends, the flood is not divine retribution for offending a violent God. It is a demonstration of what inevitably happens when we are left to our violence and our striving for power because violence always begets violence. You can't solve violence with violence. And we, this is what we see in the language of the flood. Now, um, remember also, just to point this out, that the word um, for watery depths, you remember what that was? In Genesis 1, is the word tahom. It's not as fun as shalchat, I'm sorry. Not every word can be. But what we said, this is 10 weeks ago, I don't expect you to remember, but that word to home is closely related to the Babylonian god Tiamat. And one of the things that, that God was saying in Genesis 1 is that in pushing back the chaos, he's also pushing back the influence of these foreign gods and the chaos that they bring on his people. He, he, he puts Tiamat to, to bed, to death, to create peace. Now in Genesis 7, what's, what is the instrument of destruction that comes upon the world? It's the Tehom. It's, it's Tiamat, uh, resurrected. It's the violent God whose death leads to human life. You remember the, the story in Babylonian culture is that Tiamat died in battle and that the gods used this God's dead carcass to create human life. This is another messed up ancient Near Eastern story that we were created out of, the, out of the violence of God. And so now this violent God, who, who the story says leads to human life, according to the Babylonians, is now coming back to life, is, is unleashed on the world, which leads to then the death of humanity. 
There's an inversing that happens. This is, this is um, Hebrew poetic language. To say, in a sense, the same thing that Paul says in Romans 1, that, the God, that, that our God hands us over to what we desire and what we've become. This is the God that the people have asked for, and this is the God they shall have. In a sense, God is saying, you've become the image of the violent gods of your neighbors, so I'm giving you over to them. So you can see what they do with those who give them their allegiance. This is a warning for us, I think, to pay attention to the gods of our day that vie for our allegiance. Gods who would uh, convince us to solve issues with violence. Gods that pit one nation as being better than another. Gods that tell us that the solution to every problem is to acquire and to keep more money. Like they're all around us. We just don't see the Tiamats and what they're doing. And, and this is God's warning to his people that they're real. That they have destructive power when we give our allegiance over to them. Jesus does the same thing, by the way, in the Gospels. Um, many of the times when Jesus refers to cataclysmic language, language like um, the sun will be dark and the earth er, and the moon full of blood, like heaven and earth kind of like language, it turns out that Jesus isn't so much talking about like the end of creation, but the end of Jerusalem. He's talking about God's coming judgment on the city of Jerusalem because it had become like Rome in its dealings. And Jesus is predicting that because they've become like Rome, Romans they shall be. And within one generation, Roman armies take siege of Jerusalem and it's no more for a thousand years. This is Jesus' prophetic office, if you will, as a prophet. He says about Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets. In other words, I'm trying to warn you, and, and prophets like me have been trying to warn you for generation after generation after generation that if you become the embodiment of, of a nation like Rome, full of violence and manipulation and control and suspicion, then God is going to hand you over to what you've asked for. But even then, Jesus says to his people, Matthew 23, verse 37, How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. In other words, Jesus sees the violence of his own people and he predicts the outcome, but he does so with tears in his eyes and later scars in his hands. If it seems like this picture of God looks different than the God of Genesis 6, if it seems like the God of the flood sounds more like the gods of Babylon than the God who died on the cross for his enemies, I think you have a point. I think you're right. I think it's actually a bad idea to try to minimize the differences between those two things in an attempt to just kind of make it go away. I think there's a better way. Greg Boyd, uh, theologian, pastor, he has a, a book, a few books, several, uh, but one in particular is called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And he says this, that 
the author of Genesis 6 had a veil over their eyes. They saw through a glass darkly. They got glimpses and images of who God is. And sometimes they look at God and they foresee in the future a God like the cruciform Jesus, a God who dies for his enemies. And other times they look at God and they see a reflection of the gods that they were inundated with through the influence of their neighbors. But he goes on to say this, but I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And the New Testament teaches me that no one saw clearly what God was like until Jesus shows up. And I'm bound to believe that too. Chris Green puts it this way, I'm not going to let my reading of Scripture tell me what Jesus is like. I'm going to let Jesus tell me how to read Scripture. Now the implication of that is that if we... um, if the God that we uh, perceive when we read Genesis 6 seems more like the gods of Israel's neighbors, gods like Tiamat and Baal and Marduk, a God who provokes violence rather than one who subdues it, then as Christians, we don't import that view of God onto Jesus and make the cross do something it's not actually doing. And we don't bifurcate God into an angry father and a loving son. No, we allow Jesus, who the New Testament says is the perfect representation of the character of God. What God has always been like. We allow Him to help us read the Old Testament. And what we see when we do that is that God is not a God of violence. He doesn't feel one way about us when we're good and another way when we're bad. God is love, full stop. And one manifestation of that love is that God holds a mirror up to show us our violence and what it does to us in the world. The injustice that we do to one another, it grieves the heart of our Heavenly Father and He regrets what we've become. But Jesus, who is the perfect image of God, longs to gather us back into His presence to heal us of our injustice. Are you willing Are you willing? Friends, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers in the spiritual realm, yeah? This is where our desire to dominate comes from. It it comes from the fact that we are dominated by gods of violence and injustice. But God holds a mirror up so that we can see what what our violence does to us, so that we can see what gods we're actually serving. So as we respond... Where is God's mirror illuminating what still lives in you? Maybe he's holding a mirror up to the violence of the world. Our world is full of violence. And there are calls to, uh, to, to meet violence with violence. That that is the solution. And maybe um, this morning you're waking up to the fact that God does not endorse, condone, or inhabit violence. That those things are a reflection of the human condition more than their reflection of the character of God? And if so, like, just be present to that awareness. Maybe he's holding a, a mirror up to the violence that still lives in you. If the, the Spirit is, is showing you maybe an area of your own life where Jesus longs to heal you as he tenderly gathers you in with tears and with scars in his hands. Maybe you've been struggling violently to rectify a God of violence 
with a God of nonviolent, self-sacrificial love. Today, friends, you don't have to struggle anymore. Jesus reveals a God with tears in his eyes and scars in his body that have come as a result of our violence. He wants us to see it, but he wants us. He wants you. Are you willing to let him gather you in today? Let's pray.